On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Venu Sankara was close to his sister Sasi. They were best friends, he told reporters after the murders. And even though they lived 8,000 miles apart, with Venu in Hyderabad, India, the siblings kept in touch by phone and email. Venu looked forward to Sasi's updates from America. But Sasi's family says that sometime in 2014, about three years before she and her son Anish were killed, Sasi's letters home took a dark turn. This is Venu talking to the Indian news media shortly after the murders. He says, She used to share all her sorrows with me on the phone. That is why I am suspicious of my brother-in-law. She has sent two to three messages regarding this since 2014. I also shared it as evidence. One of the emails was shared online. Sussy wrote it in broken English. We're going to have an actor read the whole thing with just a few small edits for clarity. Venu, I'm feeling so bad and sad. I'm not able to digest that Hanu is loving another lady. Deepa Ajit from CTS. I'm crying like anything daily. Sometimes I feel like dying, but after seeing Anish's face, I'm surviving. Daily I'm talking with mummy without showing my pain. But every day I'm crying like anything because of the incident above. My heart was broken. He loved me and married me. And how can he do this? After showing all the proofs that he and she have chats, he says he did not make any mistake, no guilt at all. Having wife and a five-year-old, he was bringing another woman and does not make him shame. So not sure what to do. For everything, I believed him and never expected he will cheat me like this. So now it's clear why Sussie's family is suspicious of Hanu. According to this letter, he was openly having an affair. And she thought his family was out to get her. His parents and sister and brother-in-law, everyone are so cunning and dangerous. They will not share anything especially mother-in-law, very, very dangerous. She is the one who will prepare the plans. She uses us to make them rich. She will also spoil Hanu's thoughts by telling the bad opinion of our parents and you and me. Call me when you are free. I'm so upset. And then, Sasi closes the letter in Telugu. Mummy to chepta bada, padundi ani chepta amlu. I'm not telling mom because it will hurt her. I'm Tinku Ray. And I'm Ben Adair. This is Strangeland Season 2, Murder in Maple Shade.
Episode 7, The Letter. Throughout this investigation, we've been trying to find out about Sussy, who she was and what her life was like. But at every turn, she's remained a ghostly presence, a face without a known past or identity. She was just quiet, just, you know, like a decent mother and proud mother. Sussy worked from home and didn't leave the house much. I think she really hustled. I, I know she was good at her job, um, but... I think Anish was her life, you know? I don't know. I don't know much. The few who interacted with her in Maple Shade say Sussie was a good mother, but they didn't really know her. I would see her just come up to the school, you know, always, she was always in the back of the classroom, she was always quiet. So his mom was always fairly quiet, so I didn't have any lengthy interactions with her. She was reserved, but kind. And apparently, she was holding back a lot of turmoil in her private life. Up to now, we've only heard vague impressions of Sussy. With the letter, we hear what was really going on inside her head. Sussy's beside herself, because, she says, Hanu's having an affair. She pulls herself together for Anisha's sake, but she doesn't see any resolution, because to her, Hanu hasn't demonstrated any remorse about the affair. And then, when you thought Sassi's situation couldn't get any worse, she describes the problems with her in-laws. Hanu's family is turning Hanu against her and talking bad about her family. And his parents are getting rich off them. We don't know what she means by that, but she could be referring to dowry demands. Sassi's got a lot on her mind. And for me, one of the most surprising things about the letter is that Sussie chooses to write in English. It's puzzling because it's such an intimate letter and she could have conveyed her emotions better in Thilagu, her native language. But I think it's a deliberate choice. Maybe she was creating a paper trail for authorities in case the worst happened. Maybe she was performing a small act of defiance. Despite all she's going through, Sussie's still practicing her English because she's determined to master the language of her new home. It tracks with what her family says about her. They call her ambitious and independent. They say she always dreamed of living abroad and knew that her professional skill set was her ticket out. So she worked hard, she earned a postgraduate degree in computer science, and, her family says, Sussie was thrilled when she and Hanu got the chance to move to America for work. But the life she found in America was not the one she dreamed of. I remember when I first moved to the U.S. and the growing pains I felt while adjusting to a new life, even though I grew up in England. For me, there was no culture shock, and I spoke fluent English. I also have family living here. But it's still not easy to make new friends and settle down in an alien place. I can't imagine what Sussie must have experienced, coming to New Jersey straight from South India. The language barrier, the culture shock, the isolation, plus the marital conflict, and all without any support. It's a uniquely immigrant experience, and for that reason, it's one that doesn't get talked about. <laughs>
to give voice to women like Sasinara. We wanted to hear from other Telugu women about what it was like to leave their homeland and start over. So I drove to the Om Sri Sai Balaji Temple in Monroe, New Jersey. It's a small town in central New Jersey with a sizable Indian population. The Balaji Temple is a huge facility, still under construction, that will serve Hindus in the tri-state area. The building is grandiose with marble floors and columns, dozens of gold statues of Hindu gods, and hundreds of Indian people in attendance. You can see the priests are now, um, they're dressing one of the idols, so one of the deities, in silk shawls, jewelry, which is probably made of gold. In the sanctuary, priests chant and give food offerings to a pantheon of Hindu deities. And when I arrive, there's a special ceremony for Vasavi Kanyaka Parameswari, a goddess who represents bravery and perseverance. I start talking with a mother and daughter named Ratna and Ankita Veta. They're originally from Andhra Pradesh, the same state Sasi and Hanu are from, but have now been in the U.S. for about 15 years. When I came here, that was the, like, uh, the, law, I mean, the farthest distance I have ever traveled. So far, uh, it, has been, it has been a little bit of struggle in the beginning, to, especially to change my dressing was a biggest struggle because I have never owned pants or any Western wear in my life when I was in India. Ratna immigrated to the U.S. to work in tech when she was a young mother. Ankita was just six at the time. The family was welcomed by the Indian community. But it was still hard on Ratna. There was little to no support for women and a pervasive culture of silence surrounding women's issues. Everything from marriage to menstruation. I think we, there's a need for organizations for supporting women in their specific problems, like maybe abuse or, or any kind of social issues they are feeling. The way we were brought up, uh, we all run away from our problems or we try to hide them and we try to show the good picture outside. So that should change. And I think we need to educate women to change their mindset. I think many yeah. times we forget just how isolating it is because a lot of times, like, families come here and it's often because of the visa of the husband. I mean, I'm not saying this is true in all cases, but it does happen in an overwhelming majority. Ankita remembers seeing how difficult it was for her mom and lots of other women in the Indian community. In a new country, living alone, it's really difficult to meet people when you're still getting used to the culture. So it's an incredibly isolating time. And like while the spouse might be meeting new people through work, there's really no built-in circle for them. Um, Ankita is now a med student. And while in college, she attended lectures on feminism. She says that one of the biggest struggles for Indian women is having a life outside of the home. I know a lot of parents are driving their kids to like music classes or dance or piano or whatever. Like as simple as capitalizing on that time that they're already spending out of the house to kind of have a side group or like a, a, an opportunity for them to engage with each other. Um, just so they're not kind of like feeling guilty for prioritizing themselves. I think that's like the biggest barrier is like that guilt in being a parent, especially being a mom, and saying, I'm doing something just for me. According to press accounts, Sasi's family tried to convince her to return home to India when her marriage to Hanu started going south. But she refused. 
Sassi put her own happiness aside for the sake of a niche, the family said. It was her dream to buy a house in the U.S. and to give Anish the opportunity to become a doctor. But staying in the U.S. likely meant sticking it out with Hanu. So next, we're going to talk to an expert who helps us read between the lines of Sassi's letter. And we discover that there are hundreds of other women in New Jersey just like Sassi. That's next, after the break. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, nearly half of all women who are murdered in the U.S. are killed by their intimate partners. This stat got me thinking. How did we get here? How does abuse escalate to murder? So I reach out to Navneet Palla. She's an expert in gender dynamics and domestic violence within South Asian communities. We share Sussie's letter with her, to glean some insight into what she may have been going through in the years leading up to her death. I'm crying like anything daily. Sometimes I feel like dying, but after seeing Anish's face, I'm surviving. Do you see familiar themes in this letter? Yes, unfortunately. Navneet runs a New Jersey nonprofit called Manavi. For 37 years, it's provided counseling, legal help, and support services to survivors of abuse. To her, Sassi's story is all too familiar. This was, or could be, our daughter, sister, mother. So it really is um, heartbreaking and, and gut wrenching to, to hear those words. I feel that we as a community failed her. But Manavi's a little different than other domestic violence groups. It focuses specifically on women from India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and other South Asian countries. Back in the day when I was an advocate, I, I myself remember thinking that, you know, most people may not believe that these things happen in the U.S., but they do. Manavi serves 300 to 400 people each year. Many survivors of domestic abuse struggle with feelings of isolation and lack of agency. But for immigrants, the barriers to getting help can seem insurmountable. Imagine how you would feel if you don't speak the language. You are totally unfamiliar with all the systems in this country and the very person who brought you here and who is your life partner and who you should trust is the abuser. Think about it. Just take the language barrier. If you don't speak English, then handling immigration issues, dealing with law enforcement, even seeking help from a friend or neighbor can be extremely difficult, if not impossible. So Manavi's 24-hour helpline has staff who speak Hindi, Punjabi, Telugu, Urdu, and more. Manavi workers are also fluent in the cultural nuances of the demographics they serve. The South Asian male may be the dominant person within the relationship. Now, that could be because they control the immigration status for the South Asian survivor, 
or it could be that they control the finances, or it could be that they are the ones who are more fluent in the language in a foreign country and more familiar in navigating the court system, the legal system, um, whereas a survivor may not be. We should note we've come across no solid evidence of Sasi being physically abused, but her letter indicates psychological and emotional trauma. Daily I'm talking with mummy without showing my pain, but every day I'm crying like anything. Navneet says it's common for abusers to control the money, so getting out of a troubled relationship isn't as simple as just leaving. Though Sassy made $94,000 a year, her mom said Hanu took her paycheck. And dowries open the door for even more abuse. We've had situations where their clothes, jewelry, all their belongings, everything that they may have been given by their own family, um, all of those are taken away by the in-laws. And I want to highlight here an important point that Within South Asian community, abuse is not limited to the spouse. We see time and time again that the abusers are uh, very often the in-laws and the extended family too. In her letter, Sasi describes Hanu's family as cunning and dangerous. Especially mother-in-law, very, very dangerous. She's the one who will prepare the plans. She uses us to make them rich. It sounds like Sassy felt threatened, or at least ganged up on by Hanu and his family. So why didn't she leave? Navneet says self-sacrifice is common in South Asian communities, where women stay in marriages, again, for the sake of the children and to avoid the stigma of divorce. I'm not telling mom, because it will hurt her. It's very, very difficult for the survivor to articulate, to process, to seek services. Um, And in situations where they have the courage to write a letter like the survivor did, sometimes it's too late, unfortunately. This letter is the only first-hand account we have of Sasi's home life. We've tried repeatedly to identify friends she may have had. We've approached family members, both in the U.S. and abroad. But everyone is staying quiet, so it's proving impossible for us to know the details of what actually went on behind closed doors. But there is still that upstairs neighbor, Abdul Salam. He's the one who told reporters in New Jersey that he often overheard Hanu mistreating Sasi. Remember, journalist Kevin Shea from NJ.com. Salam told us that um, the couple argued when they rode in a car. He used to make her sit in the back seat, even if it was just the two of them. So it's pretty clear we have to find Abdul Salam. That article identified him as the upstairs neighbor, which is the same thing Christine told us, though she called that upstairs neighbor Bubba. Christine also gave us this one important detail. He worked night work. You know, he was a, um, a stalker, like, you know what I mean, in ShopRite. ShopRite is a local grocery chain. So with this and all the other clues we've gathered, we start reaching out to any Abdul Salam we can find in the South Jersey area. But it's a really common name. There are a lot of Abdul Salams, and we keep striking out. Next, we turn to all the ShopRite grocery stores surrounding Mapleshade, 
But when we call, all we get is, nope, no Abduls here. Then, while going back through the archive we've made of all the news coverage of the case, we make another small discovery. A very short TV news interview with an unnamed man who, the reporter says, lived upstairs from the Naras. He was always happy. The six-year-old kid? Yeah, six-year-old kid, always happy, man. You know what I mean? Smart little kid, too. The interview shows the neighbor from the back, like he didn't want his face on camera. But we can see that he's an African-American man, a bit older, 50s, maybe 60s. These details are starting to add up. Searching property records, we compile a list of all the people connected to apartment 3C, the unit upstairs from the Naras. There are dozens of names due to that high turnover at Fox Meadow. So we start Googling, running background checks, searching social media profiles to find anyone who fits the details we know. Older, African-American, possible connection to Islam, and a current or former employee of ShopRite. One name sticks out. It's someone named Thurman Jennings. We run a background check on him, and an alias pops up, Abdul Salim. One syllable off, but really close. Then we find Thurman Jennings' Facebook page. It doesn't say much, but it does say that he works at ShopRite. Sounds like a match. So, for a second time, we call up all the shop rights in the Maple Shade area. But still, no luck. Everyone who answers says, no, sorry, no Thurman here. But then we remember, Baba or Abdul or Thurman works nights. So maybe the names don't register with the daytime employees we've been talking to. There's only one way to get to the bottom of this. We send reporter Betsy Shepard to every ShopRite in the area so that she can talk to the night crews in person. I show up at a ShopRite that's about 25 minutes from Mapleshade. It's 9.50 p.m. and the store is about to close. It's my sixth ShopRite so far. I loiter around the aisles as the night crew files in, looking for anyone who fits what we know about Thurman. I'm walking up and down the aisles when I see a man sitting on a crate studying an inventory sheet. He's older, black, wearing a white skull cap, and a long beard dyed bright orange in the style of some Muslim men. He definitely stands out, and I have no doubt that this is our guy. Excuse me. Are you Thurman, by yes. chance? Yes. That's next time on Strangeland, which starts right now. <laughs> 